Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. This is where we look at various nutrition and fitness-related topics through the lens of application. We want to give you practical takeaways so that you can create your healthiest, best self backed by knowledge. Now, on to the episode with your host, Coach Lisa. Hello and welcome back to the Nutrition and Life podcast. My name is Lisa, I'm your host, and in today's episode, I actually have a guest on. My guest today is Marcus Sidhu, fellow nutrition coach and also fellow digital nomad. So we have had lots to talk about. Today, we're going to talk about why his clients eat carbs at night, how cortisol and weight are connected, and what sort of calorie deficit he usually starts off with with his clients and much more, of course. So let's get right into the episode. And if you're new to the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, to rate it, to share it on your social media. And welcome, Marcus. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Um, so yeah, if you want to just give us a little bit of an intro, who you are, where where you're at, how you got into nutrition coaching, that would be awesome. Okay, so I'll give you like the Coles Notes version, uh, the short version. And basically... When I was in high school, I was playing all the sports and I wanted to put on weight for football and American football and it worked. I started eating a lot more. I put on a whole bunch of weight. And then when I stopped playing football in high school, I continued to eat in that same way. I didn't change my habits and I just kept piling on more and more weight. Of course, other bad habits were in the mix, you know, alcohol, um, things like that. And things just got out of control. I ballooned up basically to 210 pounds. So, you know, 60 plus pounds heavier than I am now. And I had digestion issues, skin troubles, like my mental and emotional health was not where I wanted it to be. And so I decided that I just, I needed to figure it out because I was just not happy. And it was this trial and error process. I was always into nutrition. And so I really like dove deep because I understood that, you know, I couldn't out exercise my diet. And so I was like, okay, nutrition must be the answer. Then dove deep into nutrition. I finally figured it out for myself. I cleared up, you know, my digestion issues, my skin, my mental health improved. Of course, my body composition did as well. And then it was just so powerful for me. I felt so much better. It, it rippled into every area of my life. And I just thought to myself, like, I have to share this. Mm. I went to school. I studied human kinetics in university. And then when I finished, I started my business a week later. And here we are over a decade later. And uh, I still love it. It's my passion. And uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm obsessed. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, anyone who's listening um, definitely has to go and check out Marcus' um, Instagram or social media. He has amazing transformation pictures of uh, some of his clients. Um, I think you mentioned most of your clients are like busy working professionals. So you truly coach people in how to work their nutrition around their lives um, and not in a super aggressive, non-sustainable way way obviously otherwise I wouldn't be talking to you um but in a way that is like that they are able to to carry on or keep for the rest of their life so you your focus really is on changing their life completely from from one side to another is that kind of correct 
Absolutely. It's all about sustainability for me and meeting my client where they're at. So mm. yeah, there's, there's sort of this like optimal approach, which, you know, it's a very relative term. I like to take an approach. It's like, okay, where are you at? What are your priorities? What are your goals? And let's move forward from there as opposed to, you know, trying to fit some rigid paradigm, some optimal, quote unquote, optimal paradigm into someone's life when it's like, you know, the best plan is the one that you follow. And so that's the approach that I take for sure. I love it. Um, And yeah, another thing I noticed on your social media is that you yourself like to sometimes set yourself challenges just to see, um, I guess, what current nutrition trends are about, or if you, you know, you can kind of put your two cents into it. And I actually really like that. And I like that you also emphasize, though, that you're not doing that um, as in like dogmatic and everyone, all of my clients now need to do six weeks of keto or all of my clients need to now do um, an hour of exercise every single day. You're literally just saying, hey, right now the trend is keto. There is so much research uh, coming out. Um, in regards to that and I just want to see what a what it feels like for me or it might be intermittent fasting you know whatever I'm just uh, just taking uh, whatever I kind of picked up on and but I want to see what it feels like for me if that might work for me if that might be a tool for some of my clients yes no what are the experiences so you're kind of matching up the research with your own personal experiences and on top of that using that potentially as another tool in your toolbox for some people where it might be applicable i really really um like that at least that's what it what it came across to me in in your social media as i was kind of researching a little bit yeah well i'm glad it's coming across that way because I sort of like to do these challenges for two reasons. One is I don't want to ask anybody to do anything that I'm not willing to do. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, it gives me so much insight as far as if I was to do, say, take keto, I know what it's like to be in a ketogenic state and follow a ketogenic diet versus just sort of theoretically understanding the physiology that's you know, under the surface, it's a completely different ballgame. So like you said, matching up the research with the personal experience is just so much more powerful because I can connect with my client in a far different way. Now, I have very few clients that follow the ketogenic diet just by choice, because for most folks, it's just not really sustainable, um, nor do they want to follow it. But I want to know what it's like just in case a client comes to me and says, hey, how do I formulate a ketogenic diet in the most sustainable and best way possible for me? Totally, totally. Or even just, yeah, asking about your experiences with it. And are there really such big um, cognitive benefits that as people are talking about, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I, I really think that that's, um, that's great that you have so many tools in, in your toolbox there. That brings me to the complete opposite, more or less, <laughs> something that I also picked up on, which was um, you, you had a post and that said, why my clients, why most of my clients eat carbs at night. <laughs> so going completely backwards from the ketogenic, ketogenic diet. Um, but yeah, explain to me why you made that post, of course, and also um why you have this strategy for a lot of your clients. Yeah, totally. So basically the first thing to say is that eating carbohydrates at certain times of the day does not 
you know, disproportionately impact fat loss or fat gain. So we have to create a calorie deficit in order to lose fat. And for so many folks, you know, the way that they structure their day as far as eating goes is going to impact adherence to that calorie deficit a lot. And so if someone, for example, wasn't all that hungry in the morning, which is the case for a lot of people, or they just don't want a really heavy meal in the morning or even at lunch, it just makes sense to bias carbohydrate intake or even calorie intake towards the end of the day because I think about it from a behavioral standpoint and an adherence standpoint. When are people most likely to snack, sit on the couch, want to eat more, you know, be hungry and then reach for treats and essentially sabotage their diet adherence or their calorie deficit? It's at night. And so I like to bias carb intake towards the night because it has my clients feel really, really satisfied at night. And then they are less likely to reach for other treats in that case and then adherence improves. There's also some other benefits. Some folks, you know, sleep better when they have more carbohydrates at night. And then especially for busy professionals, keeping the carbohydrates a little bit lower during the day can mm -hmm. really enhance cognitive function. I find that for me. Yes. Same. Yeah. Yep. And so for productivity, it's great. And so it's sort of like, you know, putting together this framework and structure of a day of a week of a month and looking at adherence from a big picture standpoint, as opposed to like thinking you need to consume all of your carbohydrates after a workout because you're the most insulin sensitive. It's just missing the forest for the trees, in my opinion, because adherence is the most important thing. Exactly. And I mean, I don't think that most of your clients are like high performance athletes or whatever, as you said, like more busy working professionals. So um, performance at their job is most important. Um, and I, I really like that you are, instead of saying, um, no, no, you can't have that treat at night, you know, okay, they do want that stress release. They want um, just, just from a social perspective as well. That's when they are probably out. That's when they're invited to things and so on. So instead of fighting that, how can we make our calorie and carb budget and work around that. So I really like that. And for me personally, and it definitely carbs at night definitely help my sleep. That's just for me personally. So from experience, and I would absolutely agree with that. Oh, nice. Okay. So do you bias your carbohydrates towards the evening too? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, right now I'm going through like a gaining phase. This is my, I've just completed four months. And um, so generally my carb intake is higher than, than usual or for most people, probably it's around about 300 grams per day. So I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a um, but yeah, definitely with the biggest calorie and carb load at night, just because again, it also suits me better. Like I don't want to eat a big meal throughout the day and then feel super heavy and sluggish and feel like I need to take a nap. Whereas in the evening, that feeling is totally fine. <laughs> yeah. You actually so. want it in the evening, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, great. Well, I like, I like that post and I think it's um, also so contrary to what a lot of people think or still that old belief of like, Oh, carbs at night, or, you know, you need to eat light at night. That I do believe that's still in the back of a lot of people's minds, actually. I think so too. And the the one caveat that I'd say on that front is you don't want to bias food intake or carbohydrate intake 
to bed to a degree that it starts to impact sleep because that will backfire. And so, you know, as a general rule for folks eating, you know, two, preferably three hours before bed and then cutting things off is going to put them in a position to sleep great. Um, because having, you know, 150 grams of carbohydrates, 45 minutes before bed is probably going to, you're going to wake up with the night sweats and you're going to interrupt your sleep and things like that. So yeah, there's definitely a balance with all of that, but yeah. hundred percent. Yes. But in the sense of um, carbs at night and helping stress management, that brings me nicely to another point that I wanted to talk about. And that was cortisol and just weight gain overall. I assume a lot of your clients have very busy, stressful lives. So what kind of connection have you um, observed, but also are you just aware of when it comes to cortisol and, and weight gain, especially that lower belly fat? I, I think that that is usually most associated with high cortisol levels. Mm. Yeah. So the way that I think about, I guess cortisol is sort of synonymous with stress nowadays, right? And the tendency is to think that cortisol equals bad, but every hormone is in place for a reason in the body. And so we want cortisol to be higher at certain times and then lower at other times. So right now it's the morning time for both of us. Cortisol is elevated because we are alert. We're up, we're, you know, our mind is firing, all that sort of stuff. However, we don't want elevated cortisol, you know, right before we're trying to go to bed, for example. So it's sort of about managing it um, properly throughout the day and as far as weight gain, weight loss in terms of cortisol, stress in and of itself does not cause fat gain. However, stress correlates with fat gain or even fat loss for some folks, because some people can go through a really stressful situation and their appetite is just crushed and they don't want to eat. And then other folks can go through a really stressful situation and all they want to do is eat. Mm -hmm. And so if you separate out cortisol or stress from behavior in and of itself, it doesn't contain calories. It's not causing weight gain, which is a super important point. And it's really empowering because you can modify your behavior and still lose fat, even if some life stressors are kicking up. So you're not, you know, a victim to, to your circumstances, which is great. Now, nowadays we have more than enough food available. Food is abundant and we can reach for it anytime. And so when we are stressed out, a lot of people have a tendency to reach for more food, hyperpalatable food, they overeat and therefore they gain weight. But if we eliminate food from that equation, food abundance, calories, you're not going to gain weight from stress alone. So again, that's that's really important and, and a valuable a valuable take home, I would say. Now, it is very common to just eat more when you're stressed out because things are going on in your life. You know, you have less time to cook, maybe, or you're just whatever is going on. People have busy lives. You're Maybe your relationship is straining a little bit or you're having a tough time at work. And so you can modify your behavior in a way that serves you as opposed to, you know, has you, again, I, I won't use the word victim, but just 
stress and circumstance doesn't cause you to gain weight in and of itself. I don't know if I did a great job of explaining that. No, I think uh, you absolutely did. It is uh, the our perception of it as well. I think that matters a lot. They've actually done some studies. I'm not 100% sure um, how long ago or, or where exactly, but um, it was like uh, essentially proving that if you told someone that a certain behavior was, even though it's stressful, was good for them. So let's, I think they were house cleaners um, in a hotel and they were told, hey, um, we're doing all these hours and all this exercise and walking 20,000 steps a day. That is actually really good for you, even though it feels hard. And these people, um, you know, lost lost weight and were happier and all of that, whereas the other um, people that were just told to do their chores and, you know, they were complaining and oh, this is a hard work, hard work <laughs> and so on. They were told about stress and they actually kept the same weight. So it's often it's it's not like a placebo is always just something fake. It is that our own beliefs and perceptions of things, um, I think they influence our physique or our physical response more than we think as well. And then, of course, on top of that, as you said, especially if it also mo modifies our lifestyle behaviors. And um, I think um, food is one thing, but especially alcohol that often just um, contributes to that, particularly if women are like around menopause, perimenopause, etc. Um, I have just observed that if they have a stressful life, if they're and um, they're eating maybe food quality decreases a little bit because of stress as well and um, and then on top of that they just continue with their alcohol habits their body just has a harder time dealing with it and so they might sometimes say I haven't actually changed anything about my nutrition um I'm I am you know maybe not eating as quote-unquote clean because I'm so busy but aside from that um, I'm still just drinking just drinking one glass of alcohol per night or so I have observed that that kind of impacts that on an, in a in a in a negative way our capability to deal with st stress just because we're adding that extra layer of toxin or at least we're not taking the toxin away during that time absolutely i'm glad you brought that up too because when we think about stress we tend to think about the situations right the situations that bring up stress but then if we bring it back to like nutrition movement and sleep you know, when your nutrition slips and you start to eat lower quality foods, even if you eat the same amount of calories, that is more stressful on the body. Mm -hmm. exactly. If you, if your movement takes a massive dip and you're only getting 2000 steps per day, for example, that's an additional stress. Mm -hmm. If you're not sleeping enough, that's an additional stress. Alcohol consumption, of course, is a stress. And so I like to actually reverse engineer it and go if you're stressed out, let's be sure to double down on the nutrition movement sleep because, and the alcohol, of course, because it's going to make us more resilient to whatever life throws at us. And so therefore tying it back into your perception and that study, it's like, it's all good, man. I feel pretty good. I'm taking, you know, decent care of myself. I can handle X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z life stressors. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, I want to add one thing um, because uh, I have also seen that indeed people were stressed and then they might have um, had a lot of stress from training. So maybe like two hours of training, six days a week. And then on top of that, 
they were not eating enough for a very long amount of time. So that is where I do think um, overall high cortisol, like almost chronic high cortisol levels do come into place. And where I have observed that those people, even though they are technically eating under their technical calorie maintenance, but they have such a hard time losing any kind of weight or um, especially like I was mentioning around that lower belly area. I don't know. Have you ever seen something like that or, or even maybe experienced something like that also? So just to be clear, the, they're over-exercising and they're in a deficit and they're yeah, having a hard time losing weight? Always under-eating, always like your typical, um, uh, you know, high-performance person that goes, is like, go, 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 go. Maybe sleep is even low and they're that tired and wired sort of thing where at night their cortisol is really high. In the morning, they have a hard time getting out of bed. Potentially, they may be drinking their at least two, three cups of coffee just to get through the day. And even though their calories are really low um, or have been low, or maybe because their calories have been very low, um, they're not losing weight. I guess, what are your thoughts on that statement? Got it. Okay. So I used to believe that this was a thing and a reality for folks, like being in quote unquote starvation mode or the body sort of hoarding body fat, holding on to body fat, even in a deficit when activity level is very high, et cetera. And what I've learned via experience is just that it's adherence. Mm -hmm. So somebody might be, somebody might be in a deficit, say five days per week or even six days per week. And they might be, their act, their activity could be extremely high, except you know, evolution sort of contradicts that perfectly in the sense that if we were starvation resistant, no one would ever starve. And so it comes circles back to an adherence thing. And this can be tricky with coaches and clients because mm -hmm. there's so much wrapped up in food. Maybe there's like some, you know, quote unquote, binging going on. The coach doesn't hear about it. And the coach, you know, you want to believe that your client is always telling you the truth, but there's so much wrapped in wrapped up in this stuff, right? And I know that I've gone through stages where, you know, I haven't wanted to be perfectly honest about everything that I've eaten in over the course of a week, for example. And the body never lies. And so it's just... It's physiologically, in my point of view, impossible to be under eating, over exercising and not losing fat. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I, I will say I do agree with you for the most part. I have uh, seen that um, on occasion when, you know, we I am very sure that this person has been on, let's say, like 1200 calories for like years on end um or just going through this horrible yo-yo cycle and so on and that sometimes reducing exercise taking them through a reverse diet first making sure we're kind of prioritizing um more restorative techniques and so on that actually throughout that process that they do lose weight even though we're increasing calories and um, so i have observed that in a few people but again like sometimes as you say people on average very very much uh, underestimate how much they're eating 
and overestimate their their exercise. That is 100% a fact, but um, I do think that there are outliers that um, have just been overdoing it for too long and they're actually benefiting from reducing their overall cortisol input um, or cortisol levels by prioritizing stress management, eating a little bit more and restoring their metabolic and hormonal health first and then going back into a calorie deficit. So just from experience, I guess. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I I have found that sometimes if calories get too low, that bumping up food intake can increase fat loss in the short term. <laughs> the tricky part is that as food goes up and if people continue to lose fat, it sort of circles back to that. And, and assuming that movement is the same, activity levels are the same, or if even if they come down, it still circles back to me for that adherence piece. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah it, it's um psychology is tricky. I'll put it that way. <laughs> no, I'll definitely, I'll definitely agree. I do want to bring it back to the point of alcohol because we were talking about that earlier in the sense of stress management and in this or like how, how people use it or misuse it for stress management in many occasions. Um, and I saw something else interesting on your social media where you mentioned a connection between alcohol and anxiety or that potentially um, driving up anxiety. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more on that thought and what you want to portray with that? Yeah. So this has been sort of a personal thing for me, big time. I used to drink far, far more than I do now. And I started drinking quite young. I was probably, I was maybe 12 when I had my first drink. Um, but I got into drinking when I, you know, early in high school, 14 years old and things like that. And I always sort of had this underlying, just a little bit of angst, a fair bit of I guess, depression going on. And I noticed that after I drank, the next day, I would just be highly, highly anxious. Mm. And it took me, <laughs> took me a long time to sort of put it all together. But it makes sense, right? Like alcohol, like you mentioned, is a toxin. The more of you, the more you consume, the more of that toxin you're taking in it also fragments sleep. And mm -hmm. so sleep quality takes a hit. And there are essentially no two better ways to make someone highly anxious than to sleep deprive them and to consume alcohol or drugs. Yes. So I've just noticed in myself that the less alcohol that I drink, the more calm that I mm -hmm. feel also, it's impossible to separate from the sleep piece because the fact that alcohol impairs sleep and fragments it. Now, there is like a behavioral context to all of this too, because when I don't drink, I also get tired at an appropriate time and then go to sleep earlier. And then I'm getting more time in bed and also the quality is increased. So it's sort of like, a bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that 
alcohol is out. I'm going to bed at an appropriate time and I'm getting better sleep versus alcohol is in. I'm going to bed far later and it's fragmenting my sleep. So it's like the perfect recipe for anxiousness on the alcohol side and, and to feel more calm uh, without it. But it is, you know, a social part of life and for folks that do want to incorporate alcohol in their life, you know, drinking it earlier. So the further away from bedtime you can keep it, the better it will fragment sleep less. So happy hour is better than a nightcap. That's the easiest way to think about it. But for me, I've just noticed, like, I think I underestimated just how much alcohol was impacting my mental and emotional state in terms of angst and depression until I cut it out. I created that distance and now I really see it for what it is because the sort of the, the most unfortunate thing of it was that I haven't really, or I hadn't really been without alcohol in my adult life right? to a point where I actually believed that the angst and the depression was a part of who I was. Mm, wow, and so that's a big point. Yes. Yeah. And so when I, I believed that that was, you know, part of things that I had to deal with or, you know, emotional stuff, whatever. But then when I put the alcohol aside, I realized just at a baseline level, I was far more calm. I was mm. far less anxious. I was far less depressed. I was just generally sort of default in a more content state. And I was like, oh, maybe I had to question, maybe that wasn't who I was. It was just this toxin that I was consuming outrageous yeah. amounts of on a daily and a weekly basis. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the connection that there is a connection between um, alcohol and mental health issues that, that is out of the question. I think um, often we can just also say that whatever underlying state we might be in at times is just um, exacerbated through alcohol. And so, you know, if you're generally someone who easily gets anxious or who easily feels a certain way, a little bit more depressed or whatever, then it's just going to get um, highlighted or even made a lot worse by alcohol. And then, of course, the lack of sleep, because as you said, I think it's particularly the deep sleep, the sort of second stage of the night that gets impaired by alcohol. People always say, oh, it helps me fall asleep. Well, yes, but as you say, it's a completely different quality of sleep. You don't get that deep sleep and you don't get that particularly mental restorative um, cycle of of the sleep. Um, I recently listened to, I don't know if you listened to um, Andrew Huberman's podcast, but he had a, has a whole episode on alcohol. Um, after that, most people are like, oh, I don't ever want to drink again. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I personally drink very, very rarely, um, maybe like three, four times a year. And uh, most of the time I will say it's like I do still enjoy it but like I went to a wedding and I had three drinks which is <laughs> way too much for me actually like two drinks is normally my limit I had three and the next day I just felt like a truck drove over my head like every task I had felt like it was 10 times harder I was like why <laughs> so I mean just for me it's more of a thing of like the next day I'm a I love the mornings I I like being the feeling of being productive and like a day of just hanging around and feeling like I'm a useless 
being um it's just i hate that feeling and and unfortunately that kind of or i guess fortunately for me um that keeps me away from regular alcohol consumption but i really like that recommendation of if you know as you say it is a part of social life instead of saying um people need to abstain of it from it completely giving some useful tools as in consume it earlier in the day ideally not on a regular basis maybe saving it for those special occasions if it's like an invitation someone's birthday you know where it's actually worth it as opposed to making it habitual i think that is where the danger comes in if it's habitual drinking and by habitual i even mean you know three nights a week that's still habitual that's nearly 50 percent of the time so that's 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 habitual and that's where my ears usually kind of um, open up even more when I when I hear that I'm like okay why are we actually having this kind of habit is there a way we can find something to help you calm down to feel you make you feel more relaxed in the evening aside from alcohol or could you maybe transition to um, having kombucha or a cup of tea or you know like <laughs> are there some alternatives because just saying stop it that doesn't work as we both know <laughs> when absolutely it comes yes <laughs> or ourselves <laughs> yeah yeah totally and and I'm much the same as you the thing that gets me is the hangover like I actually really I enjoy having some drinks with some friends and oh, stuff yeah. but the thing that changed for me the the sort of the turning point, the TSN turning point was when the hangover started to outweigh the fun that I had via drinking. And as soon as that flipped, because for years for me, it was worth it clearly because I engaged in the behavior. So as soon as that flipped for me, I was like, okay, this is, this is no longer um, sort of a beneficial setup for my life because like you, I, I want to feel productive. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to be depressed. I want to like crush my day, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. And I also noticed too, like just even my relationships are better, which makes total sense because I'm just feeling better. I have more to bring to the table. I have more to offer. I'm just feeling a lot better versus being hungover. And yeah. um, it's tricky, like the habitual thing, how weaved it is into our culture. Like there's, alcohol is very difficult to abstain from. And so, like you said, sort of managing to integrate it in a way that serves you is really, really beneficial from a sustainability standpoint. Most of my clients don't cut out alcohol completely. Um, they just kind of, yeah, learn to manage. And then when you get somebody to sort of gradually reduce their alcohol intake, simultaneously start eating better, moving and sleeping better. Like they feel so good. It's highly, highly motivating. And then they're like, man, I don't want to mess with this. And yeah. so alcohol just starts to sort of take a bit of a backseat. Yeah. I love that. No, that's, that's awesome. And as you say, it's a slow, gradual progression most of the time. And I mean, we're at the beginning of the year. So a lot of people have like that, Oh, I'm not going to drink at all for January, February, whatever, but um, most of the time it's actually, in my opinion, better just to learn to phase it out or to set drink limits and say instead of 
hey, I'm just going to go out without any particular aim saying tonight I'm going to have two drinks. I'm going to have an alcoholic drink between the next one. I'm going to have two non-alcoholic ones or whatever. Once you have a little bit of a guideline in mind, it's so much easier to say no than just, oh, because in the moment, as we all know, alcohol lowers inhibition. And then you're like, okay, great. Everyone's pouring pouring stuff out or offering me a drink. I'm not going to say no. hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. Yeah, it's tricky too with from a, an implementation standpoint, I think we talked about this the last time we chatted, which are moderators and abstainers. Oh yeah. So yeah. some mm -hmm. folks, you know, do well with like sort of phasing something out and then other folks do a lot better with just like Very cold Turkey. Very and then there's everything in between. So I don't know, do whatever, whatever sets somebody up for success. I'm all for, but, um, it's, it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I do have one uh, last question noted down that I did want to ask you as a follow fellow nutrition coach as well. And um, most of the time people are like, oh, what sort of deficit should I start off with, especially as we're, you know, if, if people want to handle their own nutrition, should I go aggressive? What kind of is it like a 20% calorie deficit? Do we just want to find the minimal effective dose? Do you have a... Um, one specific number that you use for all your clients or is it very dependent on their intake forms? It's definitely dependent on their intake forms, their activity levels and all that sort of stuff, how much weight they have to lose, for example, because if someone has a lot of extra weight, man, they can be in a pretty severe deficit and just feel better and better and better every week because they have a whole bunch of body fat to fuel them. But I personally don't think about it in terms of percentages, the deficit. I, for context, as you stated, I work with busy professionals. Like th these aren't folks that are, you know, exercising outrageous amounts. And so what I like to do is sort of maybe set them between the 10 to 12 calories per pound of body weight range ish, more or less super general don't, don't hold me to that. And then set protein and then mm -hmm. sort of fill in carbohydrates and fats based on what their preference is. And Perfect. again, that circles back to adherence. So yeah, I calculating deficits and percentages for me, I just prefer to go about it in the calories per pound of body weight. And then of course we monitor after week one, if we need to increase food, we do so. If we need to decrease it, we do so. Or if things are rolling along um, really well, we'll keep things as is. This also depends on how fast somebody wants to progress, you yeah. know, how they're feeling. There's just so, so many factors at play, but just as a general rule, that's that's sort of my approach. Perfect answer. I think that's a really good um, point to to start off with. And I like that you mentioned the importance of protein and like filling in the others. Um, and I know that you also have a very big emphasis on mostly eating whole foods um, and, you know, having your fun foods in there too, but like 80, 90% sort of whole foods. So really making that a priority as well. Absolutely. Because, you know, the name of the game is when it comes to fat loss is hunger mitigation, right? Like if you're hungry, it's just not sustainable. And so favoring single ingredient whole foods is of course healthier, but then also it just makes that calorie deficit so much easier to adhere to. And oh, then yeah. once you've lost the fat, 
you can mix in a few more funky foods because you have a bigger calorie budget to play with. But man, like people can be in pretty solid calorie deficits and not feel hungry at all if their program is you know, properly structured and they're favoring single ingredient whole foods. Like it is from a hunger standpoint, um, it is so manageable. Oh, and bringing that back to the point of alcohol, because um, that I have found uh, is what a lot of people struggle with. If they're like, oh, you can I fit in um, alcohol into my calorie deficit? Yeah, absolutely. You can, not a problem. But then complaining later on that they were really, really hungry over the weekend because they had like three drinks each day and, you know, pizza and protein shakes <laughs> to meet their macros. <laughs> um, well, let's look at that. How can we make those, I don't know, 15, 1600 calories feel more satiating? Definitely not by attributing four or 500 calories, a third of that <laughs> to alcohol. So, so that, that is definitely a good point. Yeah. And specifically for smaller females, like they have a much smaller calorie budget to play with. And so when they are allocating essentially resources to alcohol, that's not only taking up your calorie budget, but that's also taking away from nutrients that you can oh, consume. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. from a health standpoint, it's like, man, if you've got if you're eating 1500 calories and 500 calories is going towards booze, you only have a thousand calories worth of food to get nutrients from. <laughs> and so small females specifically are, you know, at more of a risk of developing nutrient deficiencies when alcohol is in the mix, simply because it's taking up their calorie budget. I'm so glad you pointed that out. I, I think that that's a very important thing for people to just become aware of more and more. But yeah, thank you so much for um, all the valuable information that you have shared with us. I totally agree on on pretty much everything when it comes to the the calories, the alcohol, um, and everything else, the carbs at night that we have spoken about. Is there anything, <clears throat> excuse me, anything else that you would like to share with the listeners just um, to finish off with, um, or at least also your your social media so people can go and find you? Yeah, so social media wise, uh, I am at N1 Fitness on Instagram, I'm on TikTok at the N1 Fitness and YouTube as well, Marcus Sadu. And then I also have a podcast, which is called the N1 Fitness Podcast. And then as far as leaving folks with something, specifically this time of year, I think that implementing something sustainable is sort of the the key. The key. So can I you can ask yourself the question like can i see myself following this in a week if the answer is yes can i see myself following this in a month how about a year and if the answer is yes yes and yes you're probably on to something but if the answer is you know yes no you can't see yourself following this in a month like you might want to modify your approach and implement something more sustainable because it will actually get to you to your result faster in the big scheme of things in the big picture that's that's a really good advice. Thank you so much. And yeah, thanks again for your time. I will put your social media in the show notes as well. And it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, or share the episode on social. Very much appreciated. You can also follow us on Instagram at Nutrition Coaching and Life 
or head to our website, www.nutritioncoachingandlife.com, where we provide more valuable content. Have a wonderful day. Now go out and work on your best self.